Father, thank you for once again for a, a night to consider uh, the truth of your word and to consider it especially in this format uh, of a debate between Dr. Greg Monson and Dr. Gordon Stein to see your truth up against uh, an atheistic worldview. It's, um, it's so clear that we stand in light, in truth, in reality. And we are grateful to have this example before us. We're grateful to see your truth on display and to see the power of your word and how firm a foundation we stand upon when we stand uh, obediently before our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, standing firm in his word. And we pray that you would strengthen us and strengthen our confidence and our boldness, um, grow us in humility and in uh, gentleness as we deal with people. But at the same time, help us to be bold and courageous with the truth of your word, never backing down uh, from offering uh, a defense, an apology for why we believe what we believe. We pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, go before us and prepare those hearts of the, the people that we talk to. We pray that you would save many through uh, the witness of all of us here, through this church, through faithful churches in our region as well and that you would be glorified in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, as you know by now, we've been listening to and learning from uh, that debate conduct conducted on the campus of UC Irvine in, the, in 1985 between Dr. Uh, Greg Monson, the Christian theist, and Dr. Gordon Stein, the atheist, dealing with the question, does God exist? And we have come through segments one and two of the debate in the past couple weeks. Uh, both of those had the format of uh, opening statements, cross-examinations, and then rebuttals, and now we've come to the segment three and then segment four. Segment three is really the final part of the debate. It's got two closing statements, and each debater has 10 minutes to summarize his argument and critique his opponent, and then after that, segment four will be audience questions. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with uh, Dr. Stein's op uh, closing statement. Uh, he actually doesn't take his full, uh, full time, but we're going to start with his closing statement, and then I'm going to stop and we'll I'm going to ask you a couple of questions based on what he said. Here we go. Dr. Bonson, in his last response, Volume. indeed throughout his entire talk, has made a number of claims
No. We don't say. Well, he's not saying much of anything, really. No, no. Well, he's talking in circles. We might as well see. Oh, no. Am I thwarted by an internet connection? It's an evil internet Experiencing interruptions? No internet access. Okay. So what I'm going to do... Should I... You're going to do something? You're going to reboot the router. Okay, so in the meantime, I'm going to read. You just follow along as I read, okay? So... Um, <laughs> The idea that we, there's no evil, see the, let's see, one, two, three, four, fourth paragraph. Um, the idea that there's no evil in an atheist universe is utter hogwash. Our evil is at least a rational, determinant thing. We don't say, well, did God make this evil? And then we have to go flipping through the Bible to see if it was covered at all. You know, there's a hundred volumes of commentary, at least a hundred volumes more, called the Talmud, which is the Jewish in, Jews' interpretation of all the places that the Old Testament didn't give them any guidance on for ethical and moral issues. So, I mean, these things are not clearly spelled out in the Bible. We have no guidance on a lot of things as to what's evil. Is organ transplant evil? I mean, you won't find that in your Bible. You've got to go and look. I hate making his case for him. I hate <laughs> You've got to go and look at the issues, and you do an analysis just the way any rational philosopher would do it, or an ethicist. Um, so, I mean, we have standards by which we determine evil and good. In an atheistic world, the atheistic worldview, I think I've demonstrated that the regularity of matter, which is an inherent property of matter, explains that the way we are able to make laws which are generalizations in the field of science. To say that, first of all, uh, most, many, many scientists are atheists. It's been shown by studies over and over and over again, so to claim, or as Dr. Bonson claims to claim, that science doesn't give us an atheistic worldview that's in conformity with, or I mean that science is not in conformity with, an atheistic worldview is utter nonsense. Science is in itself atheistic. It doesn't use God to explain things, and it understands that matter behaves in a regular and therefore predictable way. And that is the way in which scientific research is done. Same with logic. Logic is a consensus. I think it has a mathematical and linguistic basis. It has some conformity to the reality of the world. I don't know how many times we have to repeat that to get through to Dr. Bonson, but it doesn't seem to be. He seems to specialize in what we call the thinking makes it so school of logic, if you want to call it that. Because he says something is so, he, because he knows what God's thinking was, therefore it is so. The omniscient Dr. Bonson has answered. Well, that doesn't answer anything. If we're going to apply the tests of reason to what he says, his statements are not only irrational, they are unreasonable. The idea that the future is going to be like the past. It's a statistical probability statement. We have never seen a future. Today is the, is the future from yesterday, and yesterday, what is happening today, was the future. We've not seen anything in that time period that we have observed, which is several hundred years, to show that the regularity of matter and its behavior is going to change. If it changes, scientific experiments will go haywire, and we'll know, right off the, and we'll know it right off the bat, and we'll have to revise a lot of things. I think the chances of that happening are pretty small. Now let me finish by 
saying that atheism is not a bleak and negative concept. It frees man. It sweeps away the theological debris that has prevented man from taking action to correct the problems of this world. We want to feed the hungry. We want to educate the illiterate. We want to clothe the naked. We want to raise the standard of living. We want to spread reason and thinking and progress and science. These are all things which are, in and of themselves, atheistic. We don't do them because God told us to do them. We do them because they're right. They need to be done in this world. And if we do them because they're right and they make people happy, we will be made happy ourselves by making other people happy. It's a very positive world outlook, something which I don't think Dr. Bonson has even mentioned, but it's certainly the other side of the coin. I mean, what happens when you wipe away the God concept? Are you left with nothing? No. You're left with responsibility that you have to take on yourself. You're responsible for your actions, and also you get the credit for the, thing, for the things that you do. And I would rather have a realistic worldview that gives up a few things, it would be nice to have, but just don't happen to be true, and I'd rather operate in a worldview like that than I would on making wish fulfillment of things that are just not so. Okay, pause. <laughs> and I'm still got the circle of death. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go horse tonight reading this, but that's good. Uh, no problem. It's our last one for the year. Um, so here's a couple questions for you. Having whoa, heard Dr. Stein's uh, closing statement, read by me, and the way he has defended atheism here, uh, critique Christian theism, I'd like to go back and just pull a couple of things out of this statement and ask you, you to refute them, okay? Dr. Stein has said evil as defined in an atheist universe, is, quote, that which decreases the happiness of people. Okay? Evil is, quote, that which decreases the happiness of people. So here's the question for you. Why is that an utterly inadequate definition of evil which leads ultimately to irrationality and chaos? Why is that an inadequate definition? Brett. Um, it's inadequate because, like, this is an older, you know, debate. And nowadays, most atheists would jump down his throat for saying that. Because who, who are we as a species to say that our happiness, you know, um, is, is the ultimate end? You know, what, what, if, what if our happiness demands that we obliterate an entire race of squirrels, you know? Then <laughs> who are we to say that we are morally... Do squirrels have races? <laughs> they do. Yeah, within the squirrels, there are seven races. <laughs> seven squirrels, seven, seven squirrels, yellow, red, and white. <laughs> <laughs> One ring to rule them all. So, um, okay, so, so, so again, you're just, you're just making the point it's an inadequate definition because atheists, since 1985, have come to see we need to we need to reexamine our our uh, definition of evil because that's speciesism, right? Speciesism. We're we're uh, promoting the human species over every other species. And what if so? They're saying it's inadequate. That's You're a saying, ridiculous definition. I mean, it's ridiculous. Okay, so so again, why is it utterly inadequate to say that which decreases the happiness of people is evil? Yeah, Annie. Is it based on opinion. Okay, based on opinion. Based on opinion. You know the other word we've been using for that? That's exactly right. Other word for that? Arbitrary. That's arbitrary. I just 
you know, just him saying, you know, this is, he kind of accused Dr. Bonson of just saying so, med doesn't make it so. Right. That's exactly what he just did. <laughs> so. Your definition of evil is right. unhappy versus happy. Yeah, why should that be the definition? That's why it's utterly inadequate. And I'm asking, why does it, why does it lead to irrationality and really, ultimately, chaos? Why does it lead to chaos? So I just saw Ryan, but let me come to Leah. She thinks she had her hand. I, I think it's pretty much sim it's similar to what Annie said. But, um, you know, everybody, it, it's completely subjective. Everybody has different definitions of what makes them happy. And so you can't across the board say this is evil and this is not. Okay. So that which increases the happiness of all people. If, um, if Leah, my, my two daughters, uh, Leah and Callie, if they say what is going to increase the happiness of all people is if we require, make a law requiring that all people must wear purple, pink, or a combination of that. <laughs> certainly going to make them happy. And they know, because they've been happy and made happy by that, that that will increase your happiness as well. But Lori, she's laughing out loud. She's like, what? Purple and pink? Actually, no. I love purple and pink. But... All right, we just undermined me. Thanks, Mary. So, Joe and Pat, they're, they're not into purple and pink. They're into, they're from Virginia. What are you into? Black. What's Virginia Tech? Green. Black and, black. all right, so they're into black. <laughs> green and blue. Green and blue. They're into green and blue. So, it ultimately leads to chaos if that which increases the happiness of most people is your, is your definition of good, and that which decreases the happiness of most people is your definition of evil, because that is completely subjective, not to mention it's totally arbitrary. It's a matter of opinion. So it leads to total chaos, so this is irrational. Now, Dr. Stein has promoted atheism as that which, quote, frees mankind to take action. To correct the problems of the world, hunger, literacy, poverty, ignorance, all that stuff. Remember that? As you listen to that, what problems came to your mind with his line of thinking about that? Yes, One Natalie. One of the, thing, the oh. advances in, in medicine and that came through Christian organizations, didn't they? You know, like hospitals and... That, that argument, um, while it's, I, I know there's some truth to that, that, you know, he talked about science is inherently atheistic. I know that a lot of science was promoted by Christians in history, but that is a double-edged sword sometimes because you can see Christians being anti-scientific and the Christians being pro-scientific and you can see atheists, so you can see it going both ways. So, so I, I'm, I always am careful on those kinds of arguments. So Natalie, what do you um, that's really is the selfishness of man. People are inherently selfish. And people aren't going to do that unless they're, they're forced to, basically. They, most people aren't going to do that. Unless they're socially forced to. So you're saying that when Dr. Stein says atheism is a freeing way of thinking. It frees us up to take action, to correct the problems of the world, to solve world hunger, to achieve world peace, to, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So he's saying that, and you're saying, uh, no. No, we're not. And, and, and here's the problem you're running into with Dr. Stein, is he believes that humans innately are what? Good. Good, Good right? We're not. We're not. Without God, we wouldn't love each other. Without God, we wouldn't uh, do it. Yeah, exactly. We wouldn't do anything that's good. So, so you're just you're going down to the anthropology of it and saying, "Oh, time out." I think he's got a wrong anthropology. So, uh, I saw another hand over here, Stuart. Well, 
he kind of gives the back what, why he would do it because he has credit for it. Then he would get credit for it. Yeah. Well, if you're going that far, if, then if you don't get credit for it, you're not going to do it. Yeah, so yeah how that is was that interesting. And solving those problems. Yeah, it's it's very it's so like insidiously satanic, isn't it? Yeah. You get the credit for it. You get. You don't have to blame anything on yourself, and anything good you do, you get all the credit. Sounds wonderful. So it's inherently satanic, is what that is. Um, so one, yeah, uh, real quick, Brett. Yeah, just okay. So some atheists may want to feed the hungry. Um, they may want to educate the illiterate. The problem is, none of those. He says these things and all all things which are in and of themselves atheists, atheistic. But there's absolutely no basis for yeah. feeding the hungry from an atheistic worldview. It's okay. not, it's not like he's just saying that atheism leads to that. But it, it, it actually doesn't, there's nothing based on it. I mean, Christianity. God says you have to do that. So you do it. ideas from Christianity. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Once again, he's borrowing from a Christian worldview. Okay. So what, I'm going to make one more question, which is going to going to sharpen this. But I, I just want to say that. Stalin also wanted to feed the hungry, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. But he also wanted to take over the entire world. <laughs> so there's a couple of, you know, it's got a drawback. Let's put it that way. I was just going to say, when you, even doing these culturally sensitive things, if, if yeah. you're capable of doing that, uh -huh. doesn't solve the problem. Okay. Okay, because what, what are you saving them from? What are you helping them to increase. It's still a very limited thing. It's this world only. Okay. This temporal yeah. life. Yeah, and it is. It's this world only. It's just this temporal life. It's 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 saving them from ignorance and then they're going to die, you know. It's it's uh, it's giving them a bunch of food and then they're going to die. But in an atheistic worldview, they think what else is there but this life? Okay? So let me let me ask this. I see another number of hands. We'll get your question in there, Ryan, or your answer in there. Dr. Stein also said, which is I thought rather ironic, feeding the hungry, educating the illiterate and ignorant and so on. He said that, and then Dr. Stein said this, quote, these are all things which are in and of themselves atheistic. We don't do them because God tells us to do them, we do them because they are right. Okay, you tell me what is the fundamental problem with that statement and Dr. Stein's reasoning. Ryan. I was just going back to the Stalin comment. He wanted to feed the hungry by making less people that would be hungry. Everybody's got a different solution, Ryan. Be critical. Was it you, Gary? He said, yet it is right. Does that mean that he gets to define right and wrong? Yeah. And then he says, How did God's not going to do this. I am. So he's taking God's place, essentially. Okay. So Gary just put his finger on it. What's the problem with Dr. Stein saying, we don't do them because God tells us to do them. We do them because they're right. <laughs> According to what standard, Dr. Stein? Okay? So you guys are all on track. You guys are you guys are presuppositional apologists. I can't even believe this. After after just a couple weeks, you guys know this stuff. That's exactly right. Okay. Do I have internet connection? I don't have internet connection. What do I do? Try, do we, try, try to that. Restart with because I did test it. We're up. Is it place? We're not up. It's really down. Um, yeah, just We're waiting for you to. 
You could go into Chrome, try it in Chrome. You don't have a Well, it's it's actually my computer. That's that's not even. Oh, your computers. My computer. That that's always been the problem. So we'll deal with my IT IT issues later. Let's let's uh, go through the closing statement. I'm going to read Dr. Bonson's closing statement. I'm going to rejoice in reading this one. Okay. Here we go. So. Uh, that's a white screen of death. All right, so here's, here's the uh, closing statement from Dr. Greg Bonson. I'm going to begin my closing statement by thanking the debate team, yada, yada. Okay, so go down to, as far as my rebuttal, second paragraph, or excuse me, my closing statement. I need to deal first of all, perhaps, um, let's see here. I need to deal first of all, perhaps in the entire time analyzing this remark that my statements have been tonight irrational. Perhaps they have been, but saying so doesn't make it so. That's something we just heard as well. <laughs> if my statements have been irrational, then we need some standards of reasoning by which these statements have been shown to be irrational. Dr. Stein has yet to explain to us, even the, in the broadest, simplest, Sunday school child manner that I told you about, laws of logic, laws of science, and laws of morality, he hasn't even begun to scratch the surface to tell us how, in his worldview, there can be laws of any sort. And if there can't be laws or standards in his worldview, then he can't worry about my irrationality or my alleged irrationality. Amen. Yeah, hold on. I'm going to reboot my computer. Let's see how that works. Okay. The transcendental argument for the existence of God has not been answered by Dr. Stein. It's been evaded, it's been made fun of, but it hasn't been answered. That's what we're here for, rational interchange. This transcendental argument says the proof of the Christian God is that without him you can't prove anything. Notice the argument does not say that atheists don't prove things. The argument doesn't say that atheists don't use logic, science, or laws of morality. In fact, they do. The argument is that their worldview cannot account for what they are doing. Their worldview is not consistent with what they are doing. In their worldview, there are no laws. There are no abstract entities. There are no universals. There are no prescriptions. There's just a material universe naturalistically explained in the way things happen to be. That's not law-like or universal. And therefore, their worldview doesn't account for logic, science, or morality. But atheists, of course, of course, use logic, science, and morality, and in so doing, atheists give continual evidence of the fact that in their heart of hearts, they aren't atheists. In their heart of hearts, they know the God that I'm talking about. This God made them. This God reveals himself continually to them through the natural order, through their conscience, and through their very use of reason. They know this God, and they suppress the truth about him. One of the ways we see that they suppress the truth about him is because they can do continue to use laws of logic, science, and morality, though their worldview cannot account for them. Dr. Stein has said that the laws of logic are merely conventional. If so, then on convention, he wins tonight's debate, and on convention, I win tonight's debate. And if you're satisfied with that, you didn't need to come in the first place. You expected the laws of logic to be applied as universal standards of rationality. Rationality is not possible in a universe that just consigns them to convention. Take a pause here. I'm going to try to relaunch. Dr. Stein said the laws of science are law-like because of, their inherent, of the inherent character of matter. But Dr. Stein doesn't know the inherent character of matter. Now, if he were God, he might reveal that to us, as I think God has revealed certain things to us about the operation of the universe. But he's not God. He doesn't even believe there is a God. 
since he hasn't experienced all the instances of matter and all of the electron reactions and all the other things that scientists look at, since he hasn't experienced all of those, he doesn't know that those things are universal. He doesn't know that the future is going to be like the past. When he says, well, it's always been in the past, and boy, if it changes tomorrow, won't that make the front pages? That's not an answer. You see, we're asking, what justifies your proceeding on the expectation that the future is like the past? To say, well, it's always been that way in the past, it's just to beg the question. We want to know on what basis your worldview allows for the uniformity of nature and laws of science. I'm going to stop there for a second. Dr. Bonson, in his last response, and indeed throughout his entire talk, has made a number of claims about what's possible in an atheist universe and what is not hyper-universal. And therefore, the worldview doesn't account for logic, science, and morality. But atheists, of course, use logic, science, and morality. And so doing, like, atheists give continual evidence of the fact that bases your worldview about the uniformity of nature and laws. Sorry, uh, it, he's picking up right where I left off. Second to last yeah. paragraph. Third, thirdly, look at the second last paragraph. It says thirdly on page three. Okay, so he's in that paragraph. That is the standard for why an atheist universe should be lived by that standard. Marquis de Sade enjoyed torturing women. Now why should he give up torturing women so that he might bring Man is placing the world. Can you account for logic, 
for sure. Uh, and I don't know if you noticed him slow down his presentation mm -hmm. and say, the Bible tells us, mm -hmm. the fool says in his heart there is no God. Did you notice he, he's concerned for his opponent? He doesn't, this is not an intellectual debate, just a sparring match. He actually loves this guy. Um, he carried on more than a year's correspondence after this debate with Dr. Stein. 
And it just, um, Dr. Stein became increasingly antagonistic and hostile. Um, but uh, Dr. Bonson went after him. He cares about his audience. He cares about the people who are listening. And you need to know that when you evangelize, when you engage in an apologetic encounter like this, it's not just the person you're dealing with one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Sometimes it's the people who are around who are listening in. Sometimes they are the ones that God is affecting and working on their heart through your witness. As they watch, <clears throat> listen not just to what you say, but watch what you do, how you conduct yourself, how you interact with a person. It's a very, very powerful witness. I just want you to, to hear his tone soften there toward the end. Um, so good answers from Dr. Bonson. <clears throat> and I want to em emphasize once again that you don't have to be as thoroughly educated philosophically and apologetically as Dr. Bonson is uh, to do what he did when God sends people your way so that they, might, they too might hear your defense of the faith. If God is sending them your way, it means God wants you to answer them, you to give uh, a reason for the hope that's within you. I Sure, more study, more practice, more experience is going to help, but I want you to see that Dr. Bonson has used some of the very answers um, that you are able to come up with. You've come up with, and in, in all of our time here, as I've asked questions, you've come up with answers that you can answer these questions. These are not way over your head. Um, so you can do this, and you know you must do this. This is a command in Scripture, and by God's grace, you will do this. So let me ask you uh, a question here about an argument that Dr. Bonson used in his closing statement. Here is the argument, okay? Quote, Dr. Stein has said that the laws of logic are merely conventional. If so, then on convention, he wins tonight's debate, and on convention, I win tonight's debate, end quote. That's an argument he's using. What is Dr. Bonson doing here? What's the pattern of his argument? Uh, you can answer this question in philosophical terms, and you can answer it also in biblical terms. I'll accept either answer. What do you think, Bruce? He's saying you're right and I'm right. And, okay, and what is that? In other words, whatever you view as right is Sure. Right. Yeah, so you're right and I'm right. And what is that called <laughs> philosophically? Contradiction. A contradiction. Okay? So that violates the law of non-contradiction, which is a philosophical concept, which is another term for a total contradiction is absurdity. So this is, this is a, uh, a method of argumentation in philosophical terms called uh, reductio ad absurdum. He's reduced his opponent's argument to absurdity. Yes? Just wondering... I haven't, this, I, this is the first time I've been to this class, so I obviously don't know what you have been teaching up to this point. Yeah. But could you explain a little bit more what he's saying that if we're just abiding by logic, I'm right, you're right, we go our separate ways. Is, is that what he's saying? He's saying that, or what, what, what are you saying there? Okay. He, he, is, he is basically, so he's, he's quoting Dr. Stein's argument back to him. Dr. Stein, Dr. Bonson, the Christian theist, has said that the laws of logic are universal, invariant, and absolute. Okay. 
Okay. Okay. Those are. Is the atheist that said that. No, no that's the oh, theist. The, the Christian theist. theist has said. Doctor Bonson is the theist. Okay. He's the one we just heard from. Okay. And he says that laws of logic are like laws of morality. Um, they are invariant, universal, absolute. Doctor Stein says, "Oh no, no, they're social conventions." Okay. He's saying that uh, societies over time. You know, you heard him talk about, you know, you have influence from the Bible and parents and teaching and things like that. And over time, we've kind of all come to assume, based on uh, linguistic studies, based on the, the uh, uh, uniformity of matter, um, matter always acts in this way, and so we develop laws of logic based on that and based on societal convention. So Dr. S Dr. Bonson is quoting that back to him and saying, basically, on convention, if, if all this is just convention, on convention, I win tonight's debate, and on convention, you win tonight's debate. Does that make sense? Yes. Thank okay. You. Sure, sure. So, <clears throat> in philosophical terms, oh, yes, Brett. Oh, yeah. You said reductio ad absurdum. Uh -huh. so, so, in biblical terms, it's answering the fool according to his folly. Good. Yes. Right. Yes. So, in, in philosophical terms, this is called. Reducing your opponent's argument to absurdity. There's a Latin term for that, reducing ad absurdum. But, in, in, and uh, so basically, he's saying <clears throat> that if laws of logic, um, you know, and also we talked about this as laws of morality, if they're all social conventions, if they're all just what a society comes up with, and they agree in their society that this is how we're going to. This is how we're going to have an argument together, or this is how our morality is going to be done, that you know, murder is always wrong in our society, but oh, maybe over there in that society, they murder each other all the time, and that's okay. That's actually good. Um, in their social conventions, murder is right. In our social convention, murder is wrong. So he's just boiling that down from, let's just take it away from two societies and talk about two opponents here debating one another. On convention, I win. On convention, you win. What that is, is a logical absurdity. Okay? So, if they're all social conventions, then they're not laws at all. They're not law-like in nature. They're not invariant, universal, and absolute. Okay? <clears throat> um, but they're utterly, instead, utterly arbitrary, immediately contradictory. So, to say I win tonight's debate and also you win tonight's debate, there's a blatant contradiction which is irrational and absurd. And basically, Dr. Stein has basically forfeited his logic. He's forfeited his commitment to logic by, by saying that laws, are, laws of logic are social conventions. So Dr. Bonson has reduced Dr. Stein's argument to absurdity. And, and just keep in mind, too, that Dr. Stein, he was never able to demonstrate that how Dr. Bonson was arbitrary, irrational, absurd at all. He never did that. He never demonstrated it. He accused him, but never said it, or he never uh, demonstrated it. In biblical terms, just what Brett said. This, Dr. Bonson has argued using what we've said, we've referred to over and over, Proverbs 26.5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So Dr. Stein here, again, this isn't name calling, but biblically defined, he is the fool. He is the one who's remained fixed in his folly. As I said, uh, Dr. Bonson carried on this correspondence for a year. You would have hoped that Dr. Stein would have humbled himself uh, and relented and, and given up his, his, uh, his viewpoint, but he, as far as we know, he didn't. He died of cancer in 1996, um, an avowed atheist. And, um, you know, I, I, I just think it's in, incredible to think that doctor, uh, God sent a man of the caliber of Dr. Bonson 
to come and witness to this guy and to carry on a year-long correspondence with him afterwards, reaching him. That, that shows the grace of God. That shows the patience of God, the kindness of God. Okay, pretty sobering, pretty sobering. And to think that you are that vessel as well. When you go and talk to an unbeliever, we're dealing with life and death stuff here, okay? I want you to understand that. This is not a, um, it's not a small, small issue. We're dealing with life and death. Eternity is at stake. We're going to go on to the final portion, which is uh, another uh, 15 minutes of audience questions. And I'm going to do this in a certain way that we're going to be involved. Uh, but I want to, before I do that, I want to see if there are any other questions, because uh, we, we just wrapped up the closing statements, which is really the substance of, uh, of this great debate. Any questions? Okay? No? Okay, so... This is, a, this is a very interesting portion of the debate. I'm glad they do this in segment four. Uh, 15 minutes of audience, audience questions. It's really interesting to hear how each man, uh, speaking from his own worldview, how he answers each question. Um, so audience questions, the moderator is going to read three sets of audience questions, okay? Uh, with one question addressed to each debater, he'll alternate between debaters for a total of six uh, questions. So the one to whom the question is addressed is going to have two minutes to respond to the question, and then his opponent has one minute to respond with a rebuttal, then they'll switch sides and, and uh, do, do it the opposite. So total of six questions. And I've tried to summarize the question in the transcript with headings there, as you can see. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to listen to the moderator, read the question. Uh, I'm going to stop the audio, and then we're going to see how you would answer the question. Okay? We're going to see how we do. We're in, um, when, they, when they pose the question to Dr. Stein, we're going to anticipate his answer. How would he answer from an atheist worldview? and then how we would refute that answer, okay? And no cheating by looking ahead in the transcript either. All right, I know you guys. Right, Natalie? They're sinners. They got sin in their hearts. Exactly. That happy. What's that? But that would make me happy. That would make you most happy? I'm wearing purple and pink and happy. You're not wearing purple and pink. Lee and Callie say you're not achieving the most happiness. All right. So that's evil. So that's evil. All right, let me see where I start here. This evening will be directed to Dr. Greg Bonson. Okay. Dr. Bonson, the question reads, what solid, what solid evidence do you have to maintain that the Christian faith is the only true religion with a God? There are religions far older and more just as widespread, which millions of people consider valid. Once again, what solid evidence do you have to maintain that the Christian faith is the only true religion with a God? Okay. So how would you answer that question? Exclusivity of Christianity is the question. How are you going to defend that, Chuck? Uh, what criteria are you using for solid evidence and where did you get those criteria oh so you're not even going to answer the question you're going to answer the question with the question yeah. i like it all right so we're, you're just trying to get down into the um into the presuppositional nature of the question yeah. to say what evidence uh, challenging the nature of evidence that's a great approach okay um yes so i would say that the bible proves it so by putting history in the Bible, like it puts Rome 
in the Bible. It's, and there is archaeological evidence okay. to show that Rome was there. Okay, so good. You're going to point to some of the ways that the Bible is reliable, the validity of Scripture and the reliability of the Bible, um, in how it's tied so thoroughly, like, like enmeshed into human history. You're going to show some of those evidences. That's good. That's good. I would bring that in, too. Um, uh, so great answer. What, what else? Exclusivity of Christianity. Brett. I'd say, you know, basically that's a separate... <clears throat> issue from this debate because this debate focused on atheism like whether there was a, a god but just basically you would tr you would travel the same path um i've been convinced as i look at other religions that they not they also are arbitrary they also are incoherent they also uh fail to account for basic reality they also don't give the preconditions okay. for intelligibility, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so you're going to go back to, uh, you can you can do it two, two ways. You can go into their worldview and just say, listen, I haven't found any of the other options out there to be philosophically defensible. They all reduce to absurdity in the end. They are all guilty of irrationality, arbitrariness, uh, unargued uh uh, prejudicial conjecture, all unargued presuppositions. They just make statements, and then they expect you to go. Ex if you accept that statement, my whole system will make sense. But you have to accept that statement first. So you can go that route, or you can say, the proof of Christian theism is in the impossibility of the contrary. And so you can use a positive argument and say, let's look at Christianity, how it explains the entire world around us, how it and it alone provides the preconditions of intelligibility, laws of logic, laws of morality, beauty, all, all the rest. Okay? Good. Carrie? Well, if you go back to Chuck and what he said about proof, then you're going to go back to is Christianity has a stack of evidence supporting it with witnesses and all kinds of proof of text and I mean Christianity can be proven with all kinds of evidence and so for Christianity it's not just our faith which it is faith for believers mm -hmm. but for unbelievers we're not talking lies we're talking evidence Truths. True, and and that and you are absolutely right. It's exactly. Can you remind me of your name, Jack? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Jack, that's exactly what Jack was pointing to is evidence for the for the reliability of Scripture tied into history and everything. We point to an empty tomb. You can talk about all kinds of evidences. The 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 challenge, though, you'll face with using strictly an evidential approach is what you're doing when you're proposing evidences to that unbeliever is you're asking that unbeliever to weigh your evidences. And what's he weighing your evidences through? His unregenerate, hostile mind. So he will reject your evidences. You say, um, well, you know, you know, the Bible talks about Rome and talks about an empty tomb. Well, you know, I don't accept that. <laughs> I don't, ex I don't accept that, you know. I don't well, uh, pay you for working this week either. <laughs> <laughs> so appeal to the stick is what she's going to do. <laughs> well, yeah, One of the things that really separates Christianity from all the other religions is that all those other religions are based upon what you do, and Christianity is what has been done. Yeah, that's right. So the, uh, the, the religions, all the, I mean, it's really one religion. It's the religion of self-effort versus the religion of divine grace. Yeah, that's very true. 
Um, but once again, if we're just presenting evidence versus evidence, you know, I, and I've done this, there, there are so many other religions that say, oh, uh, our God's gracious too. Our God's gracious too. So are you saying that you have grace and then there's no work you have to do? Oh, you do have to do some work. Okay, because we have to do some work too. So see, we're the same. So anyway, their unbelieving, unregenerate mind that's hostile to what you're saying, predisposed to be hostile to what you're saying, is predisposed to rejecting your evidence. So again, we're back to going to the presuppositional nature, using evidences along the way, but we're going back to the presuppositional nature of the argument, of the nature of evidence and all those kind of things. Yes, yeah, Seth? Are you saying that because of their unregenerate mind, they can't be, they won't believe the evidence of the truth of Christianity unless God works in them supernaturally and reward? Absolutely, I am saying that. So you're saying... They are predisposed by their, by their orientation of being in rebellion against God. They're predisposed to... Uh, to ultimately reject Christ. They're morally predisposed to that. They have an axe to grind. They have a chip on their shoulder. So yes. But, but yes, God, so God must be gracious, initiate by regenerating them and bringing them to, to repentance and faith. I am saying that, yeah. Okay, yeah, Ren? I would, you know, as a layman, a believer in Christ, I just have two things I can present like Paul, your personal testimony, how you encountered, how the Lord saved you. And then second would be the absolute authority of scripture. That's two things that comes to my mind. Oh yeah, absolutely. We're, we're going to do that. We're going to use our own personal testimony and story. We're also going to speak, um, you know, how God, you know, talk about how God saved us, forgave us of all of our sins. We're going to definitely talk about that. We're going to bring gospel into it. Uh, but when we're talking about why can you say that I must believe in Christianity is the only exclusive way to God. You know, your personal testimony doesn't make that argument. Okay? The authority of Scripture. Yeah, through, through the authority of Scripture. But again, we're back to, well, I don't accept that as my authority. I accept the Bhagavad Gita as my authority. Or I accept the Quran as my authority. Or, you know, the Book of Mormon. So then it's just, you're back to debating evidence versus evidence. Um, you know, and so that's why you do need to get back to step, as I said, stepping on their air hose, uh, going behind them and stepping on their air hose or cutting off their supply so that um, they have to reckon with their presuppositions. So you expose their presuppositions. They start gasping when <gasps> you've choked my presuppositions. Okay? That's what we're trying to do. All right. I need to play because we're running out of time. Let's listen to Dr. Bonson. Very good and relevant question. I want to say two things just by way of preface. One, um, that isn't what the subject of our debate was tonight. However, uh, that can't just be uh, uh, taken for granted. It's worthy of a debate. It's just that we couldn't do everything in one debate. Secondly, you might be interested to know that in my original opening statement, um, I have a long paragraph dealing with that very question so that it wouldn't be thought that I was just flying over it arbitrarily and, and dealing with that matter. Uh, but when I read it back to myself and time myself, it just turned out I had to cut a number of things out, so I cut that down. What I did say, however, was that um, 
I can find it here, that I have not found the non-Christian religions to be philosophically defensible, each of them being internally incoherent or undermining human reason and experience. Unless it will violate your debate for now, I give just a couple of illustrations. That's obviously I have to cover all of them. For instance, uh, Hinduism assumes that God, or Brahman, is the uh, impersonal, universal soul of the unchanging one of which all things are part, for instance. And because of that particular outlook, Hinduism says that everything in terms of my normal experience of the world and thinking is maya or illusion. Because everything in experience and thinking presupposes distinctions. But that is that is contrary to the most fundamental metaphysical fact, and that's that there are no distinctions, all is one. So basically, Hinduism tells me that all of my thinking, all of my reasoning is illusion, and, and so doing is it undermines reason. Um, you can take religions such as uh, Shintoism, its view of uh, Kami, the forces that, uh, that uh, permeate the universe, or Taoism, the ordering force of the universe, and uh, they are impersonal forces, and as such are even less than human beings because they don't have volition or intelligence. Is that an introduction? Okay. Let me just re-explain the format. Um, we will allow the person to whom the question is directed to have a two-minute response, and his opponent will have a one-minute opportunity to rebut. Well, Dr. Bonson has criticized Hinduism. I would make the case that Hinduism is no more irrational than Christianity is, nor do I think that it is any more irrational than Islam is, nor is it any more irrational than almost any other religion that you want to name. With one exception, I'd say Buddhism is more rational than either Christianity or Hinduism. That doesn't mean that I accept Buddhism either, but I just think it's more rational. At least it makes some psychological sense and nothing else. According to your definition and basis for evil, why was Hitler's Germany wrong? Or was it? No. Jews and others were defined as non-persons, so their happiness doesn't really count. Once again, according to your definition and basis for evil, why was Hitler's Germany wrong? Or was it? Okay, so how do you think Dr. Stein's going to answer the question? And then secondly, how would you refute that? He won't. He's just going to dance around it like he has everything else. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 What do you think? He goes all around. He never gets to it. You just you like him. You just want to say. So you, you and Carrie are going to double team and. <laughs> no, no, no. I just feel bad for him. Oh, okay. All right, Ryan. I think in that sort of situation, he's going to say that I, the, it's going to start with Nazi Germany thought that you know they were creating the most good for for Germany, but then the outside world, you know, the greater happiness at stake, so had to defeat those forces because you know that was you know, they were evil, but it's to the victor goes spoils because it's just determining you know this larger group has a higher sense of happiness than this, so. This is evil. Okay, so good. You're so you you have helped to make Dr. Stein's case for him that what he's going to say and don't read ahead, but he's going to say something very similar. I won't let the cat out of the bag, but what he's going to say something very similar to what Ryan just said. So keep that in mind. You're already thinking in the right term. So now, how would you answer Ryan, Dr. Stein, Ryan, Dr. Stein, Ryan Stein? <laughs> Yes. I would ask him what he would think if he was part of the group that was being wiped out and his individual viewpoint of what is right, what is evil. 
Okay, that's a really, really good answer. Jesse, right? That's a really good answer. Ryan, what would you think if you're part of the group being wiped out? How dare you? Yeah. But that's a, that's a really, really good answer because it, it kind of pulls in the emotion uh, of uh, the feeling of the person you're talking to to say, this isn't just about your logic versus somebody else's logic. This is about somebody's life. This actually happened. So it's, it's a powerful question, isn't it? Um, but it's going to come back to you know, my good is is at stake. You're, you're putting your your value of you know of good or happiness above right. my own. Right. Uh, but when it comes down to life, you just can't. Okay. Take something. All right, good. So Callie Rose, if your answer has nothing to do with pink or purple, I'll accept it. Well, I was wondering if I could um, uh, talk about something according to the question before this question. Okay. Um, can I can I say can I listen to it and then say let's talk about it at home if I think it's going to take too much time? Sure. Okay. All right, you go ahead. No. I personally don't really know anything else about the other religions, and if I was asked that question, it would take more studying to be able to answer that and write with it. Okay, so that's, that is a very fair thing to say. And what I would encourage you to do and encourage all of us to do is when you get into that situation, to just say exactly what you said. To say, hey, listen, that's a great question. I've never studied that before. Let me go and think about that and study. But let me ask you a question. And then you write back into either the gospel. You know, what are you going to do on Judgment Day before a holy God with your sin? What are you going to do? How, how is God going to accept you, embrace you, reconcile you to himself? What, how are you going to answer that problem? Before I answer that other problem, how are you going to deal with your sin, your conscience? So ask them a question to think about while you think about their question. Okay, that's a good that's a good good question. Okay, so let's uh, let's hear Dr. Stein answer this uh, Hitler's Germany question. Well, Germany is part of the Western European tradition. It's not deepest Africa or some place on Mars. It's, it, they have the same Judeo-Christian background and basically the same connection with the rest of the, of the developed world. So therefore, the standards of morality that have been worked out as consensus is. Apply to them too. They can't arbitrarily, Hitler can't arbitrarily say, well, I'm not going by the consensus that genocide is, is evil and wrong. I'm just going to change it and make it right. He has not the prerogative to do that, neither does the German society as a whole. Because it is still part of a larger society, which you might call Western society. So even though morality is a consensus, it's not a consensus of one person or two people, it's a consensus of entire civilizations. And he cannot just arbitrarily do that. So what he did was evil and wrong. Okay, so that sounds a lot like Ryan, right? No. It's, it sounds very similar to what Ryan said. Um, that basically Hitler is, uh, has stepped out of the consensus of wider European culture. My question then would be, why stop with wider European culture? Actually, if you look back throughout time, Hitler is a very normal leader. All kinds of leaders of, of civilizations destroyed other civilizations. They were genocidal maniacs, and they thought they had a divine right to do so. 
So actually, Hitler is more in consensus with human history than Christian Europe. Christianity steps out, the bounds, out of the bounds of consensus and demands exclusivity, right? So listen to Dr. Stein now. Dr. Bonten, your Stein continues to beg the most important questions that are brought up. He, he tells us that Hitler's Germany was wrong because Hitler or the German people didn't have the right to break out of the consensus of Western civilization. Why not? Why, uh, why is there any moral obligation upon Hitler or the German people to live up to the past tradition of Western morality? In an atheist universe, there is no answer to that question. He gives the answer. Yeah. Okay, and that very, very clear, isn't it? Uh, I saw a couple hands go up, so I just want to see. Yeah. Well, he's just ma he's making an absolute statement. Standards of morality apply to them too. Their <laughs> consensus. And I would ask him. Oh yeah, are you absolutely sure about that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Based on what? Yeah. Uh, just one second, uh, Christy. Oh, I was just going to point out in Dr. Stein's um, argument, he uses the culture that is based on the Judeo-Christian <laughs> worldview anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He cannot like, he stop to, borrowing from the Christian worldview. He can't go to Africa to do that because yeah. it's not moral, you know, <laughs> there isn't any moral basis for some of the civilizations or, yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he, really, he really cannot stop borrowing from the Christian worldview to make his point. Yeah, Seth. At the end of uh, Dr. Watson, is that his He said that as a negative, he says that the argument is completely arbitrary. What, what's wrong with a, what, what's he saying is wrong with an arbitrary uh, morality? What is, what it, when you say something is arbitrary, basically another way of saying that is it's just your opinion. Mm -hmm. And it's arbitrarily stated. So why should your opinion be more valid, valid than my opinion, than her opinion, than his opinion? If we're just, and, that, and, th and there has to be something that is the ruler of all opinions. There has to be a right and wrong. And so our, when your argument is based on arbitrary reasoning, it is, you basically forfeited the argument. You have demonstrated that if, if, all, you're, if all you're asserting is an opinion, therefore why should, why should we listen to you? So that's what he's saying about Dr. Stein, is that you have forfeited your rationality your whole thing, your whole argument here is based on your opinion. You're arbitrary. And it's arbitrary because it's his reasoning against whoever's reasoning. Is what he's saying is arbitrary, but oh, what he's saying is arbitrary is is what he said here. Um, um, Dr. So Dr. Stein tells us Hitler's Germany was wrong because Hitler, the German people, didn't have the right to break out of the consensus of Western civilization. So Dr. Stein is just saying they don't have the right to do that. And Dr. Bonson's coming back and saying, why not? That's just an opinion. He's just asserting an opinion. There's no reason for it. Now, in a Christian worldview, we understand there's a law of God that determines whether Hitler can kill people that, are, that he doesn't want to, want to living anymore. There's a law of God that governs Hitler and Mussolini and Winston Churchill and everybody else. There's a law of God that's universal, it's absolute, it's invariant. There's laws of logic based on the, based on the reasoning of God, based on the, the, uh, the, you know, who God is. Laws of logic, der derivative of his thinking, 
that are also universal, absolute, and invariant. And so we have a reason that's not arbitrary, but they just don't like the answer. Okay, so that's why that's why he's saying what he's what he's saying. Good questions. Um, let's go on to the next question. Yes, Rebecca. Small sure, sure. I keep going back to him saying everybody gets to do what makes them happy. Well, it made Hitler happy to do that. You got it. He can't then turn around and say, no, you can't do that because yeah. it doesn't make me happy for Hitler to do that. But Hitler was happy, so he had a right to do it. And that's exactly why he brought up the Marquis de Sade um, example. That's, it's, yeah, it's just brilliant. It's that's exactly right. Dumb. It is. But that is exactly how our world reasons. And it is just dumb. It is illogical. But they don't seem to mind that as long as they get to have their, you know, their burger their way. All right. Next question. Our next set of questions, Next question is directed to you, Dr. Bonson. I can read it for just a minute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why is there pain and evil in the world? Okay, it's the problem of evil question. We're back to that. How would you answer it? Why is there pain and evil in the world? Yes, Natalie? Um, so I go to this um, church group at my school, which is really fun, and we saw this video about a Christian philosophy teacher, I think it was, and one of his students asked this question in a whole philosophy way and he's like and he returned by switching the question around and asking why is it that God allows us to live because we are the reason that evil is in the world that we're evil and God allows us to live and, and so it switches the blame from God to us I just thought that was cool that is interesting but it doesn't it just kind of kicks the problem yeah. kicks the can down the road a little bit because the problem still remains yeah. and the problem of evil is is a problem we face of how are we going to answer this so let's say uh, uh, you know if there is a an all good omnibenevolent God and an all-powerful omnipotent God if he knows all things and he is all-powerful and he's all good why is there evil in the world? Couldn't he have prevented man from doing evil? Couldn't he have made men that or made a world in which evil didn't have to be and all this suffering didn't have to happen? So we're just, uh, there are a lot of answers that do try to kick that question down the road. And it sounds like whoever brought that up had been listening to some of the evidential apologists that I've heard try to answer that question. So there still, there's still is the question remains and it's, it, it's, it's actually easier to solve if you just go back to what scripture teaches about God. Josh? Well, the first thing you say is that it's Christian worldview is the only worldview that accounts for the category of evil. So you, you can't even define evil apart from the existence of a perfect holy God. Right. Therefore, since our definition of evil exists only in, 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 in contradiction to who he is, um, then we can know, and, and we know that, the, and, and we know that he's good. I mean, you can go to scripture then and say he's good, and say that yeah. and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And uh -huh. the one who uh, who defines what good is, and who gives us any idea of what evil is, he has a good purpose for anything. Okay. So, so why is there pain, pain and evil in the world? 
And you came to say that God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-good, and he's all-wise. And so we, we just run to the character of God, that he's absolutely sovereign, and he has a good and wise reason for the existence of evil. Because, let's go back to the scripture, what does the Bible teach? When was the lamb slain? Before the foundation of the world. So if Christ, if the crucifixion of Christ was planned and decreed before the foundation of the world, what was the crucifixion of Christ if it wasn't the greatest injustice in the history of mankind? What was it if it wasn't murder? If it didn't involve lying and deception and, and conspiracy to do all these crimes against the only one perfect man who ever existed? I see that hand. I see that hand. I'm not going to get to you. Um, so God decreed the existence of evil. We have to r go right back to scripture and take that head on and say, yes, our God decreed it. He is not responsible for or guilty of evil. There are secondary causes, mankind, Satan, that committed evil, committed acts of evil. They are morally, morally responsible for the evil that they committed. But God as a, as a primary, as the decreer, He's not responsible, morally culpable for the existence of evil, even though he decreed it. It's tough. It's a tough thing to look somebody in the eye and tell them that, but that's exactly what we must do. Why? Because Christ is Lord of our hearts. Christ is Lord of our thinking. This is exactly what his word teaches. Okay? So, let's see now how Dr. Bonson answers. There are a number of answers that... Uh by the way, I just want to say with regard to Josh's original, the thing he first started saying, that's brilliant. Uh, because what, I don't know if you remember what he said, but he said, even the fact that you're asking this question borrows from my worldview. You do not have a category for evil that's, that's philosophically justifiable apart from the Christian worldview. So the fact that you're even asking a question about trying to hold God accountable for evil, put God on the dock and have him justify the existence of evil, tells me that the knowledge of God is written on your heart. That you have a conscience that, that has, a, has categories of moral right and wrong. Where did that come from? Your worldview didn't provide that. Only the Christian worldview provided that. That's actually a brilliant part one of the argument. And then part two is to write, rely right on the character of God. Question, why is something the way that it is? One relevant one, but not the most ultimate answer, would be if there's pain and evil in this world because men have decided to rebel against God, their maker, and that's one of the consequences of rebelling against God. Now somebody can say, well, that's not fair. God shouldn't punish people for rebelling against him. Well, I mean, if there is a God, as I've maintained, and if he is the Christian God as revealed in Scripture, so we'll do any good to complain about that. That's the way God governs mankind. And if you think you know better than God about morality, then you're in Job's position. You want to have an interview with God. And you'll end up like Job. You'll put your hand over your mouth and you'll say, I've spoken too soon. I can't contend with the Almighty. Okay, so that's one answer is that God has uh, decided that that would be the outcome. People decided to rebel against him. If they want to be their own little gods, if they want to make their own rules of morality and by them, then the consequences are going to be such and such. And that includes pain for animals in created order because in so doing, man represented all of creation. Even as the second man, Jesus Christ, represents all of creation in the new heavens and the new earth, which I believe, based on faith in the scriptures, is yet to come. And that new heavens and new earth will be a redeemed earth 
sign here when the nebula? Well, Dr. Bonson has given us another one of his famous non-answers. Basically, what he said is anything God does is what he does. It's a tautology. It doesn't say anything. Now, how can someone rebel against an omnipotent God? This is a logical self-contradiction. If God is omnipotent, he has the power to prevent man from rebelling against him. And assuming he doesn't like rebellion, which I think Dr. Bonson would concede, uh, because man is, is evidently going to be punished for this in some way, uh, for his rebellion, eventually, the day of judgment. Uh, if God had the power to, to prevent him from rebelling, then he would have prevented him from rebelling. And just to say that God does what he does is not to give us an answer at all. All right, you guys. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. We have three more questions to go, and uh, I'll just let you listen to that or read it on your own. Um, I did want to ask you one question, and then we're we want to sing. Okay, we want to sing a little bit, but I want to answer. Uh, I want to ask you uh, one question about. This is the question: How are we able to take what we've been hearing? That is the uh, presuppositionalist um, argumentation uh, that we've heard Dr. Bonson employ as he's interacted with Dr. Stein. How can we take what we've been learning, what we've been hearing, and then apply it not just to atheism, not just to a materialist, secularist, naturalistic explanation of the world, but to any non-Christian worldview? Does this stuff only apply to atheism? Does it only apply to a materialistic uh, worldview? Or does it apply to all non-Christian worldviews? And if so, how? I see that hand. Let's go to Seth. Well, it's the, the same thing. Every worldview is, other than Christianity is just the idea that everyone else is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Every other worldview is the same. It's either you're a Christian and you're believing the truth, or you're wrong and you're going to hell. And we have to understand that every other worldview does take from our worldview. Everything is based off the same laws of morality, of logic, and everything. It's all the same. They all take from our worldview and claim it as their own, and then feign some higher moral understanding and say that we're the ones that are wrong when they are actually taking everything from us and just suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. Okay. That was very succinctly and powerfully stated. That's exactly right. Anybody, everybody understand what he's saying? Yes. Okay, good. Thank you, Seth. That was very good. We got it on tape too. So if you want to, you want to jot it down and use it as a, a, for, a starter for your new book. No. Um, just another thought. It, it doesn't matter who you're arguing with. You can always argue the um, the fact that Scripture doesn't ever contradict itself. And so, because everybody agrees that there are standards of morality and logic, things like that, um, the Bible is the only. Um, authority that will agree with with what is you know written on our hearts those laws of morality and, and logic um, the Bible is completely consistent with and consistent within itself other religions um, their writings contradict um, themselves within the actual writings. Okay. Okay. So let's start with what Seth said and what Seth is saying is there are really only two worldviews. There's the Christian worldview, Christian theism, and there's the non-Christian worldview. And so the non-Christian worldview can look atheistic, it can look uh, Hindu, it can look is, uh, Muslim, it can look um, Mormon, it can look all all different shades, colors, and everything else, but they are just different shades of black, okay? You're saying the way we go in to investigate each of those worldviews is by doing an internal critique of their worldview and demonstrating 
again, uh, prejudicial conjecture, which is arbitrariness. We demonstrate um, unargued, uh, you know, philosophical biases. We 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 show their presuppositions that are that are hostile to God. Uh, so you go and do an internal critique on any worldview. So we employ the same kind of reasoning, just with whatever we're presented, with whatever non-Christian form of worldview that we're presented. It's the same approach. Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. All right. Annie. I'm trying to remember back to my freshman philosophy class and the term we use, but it seems like every non-Christian worldview is based on a slippery slope. Like they're just going to keep on sliding as you unravel what they believe in. Okay, yeah, that's, that's right. And that's what we're talking about with regard to the reducing their argument to absurdity. That if you just, if you just get, let's say you step in, you choose that, uh, answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That is, you're going to step into his worldview for a moment. And let's chase this down for a little bit. Come on, let's, let's walk. And let's take your presuppositions, let's take your thoughts, and we'll run them down the road a little bit and see if they actually yield good fruit or bad fruit. That's what you're, you're going to show, is they actually lead to absurdity, irrationality, chaos, uh, contradiction, all that. That's exactly right. Chuck? One thing that's really helped me about the apologetics part of this has been uh, your uh, discussion of what worldview, the three steps, that, you know, three parts mm -hmm. of a worldview, yeah, yeah. the metaphysics, the epistemology, and then the, and the ethics, uh, yeah. morale, morality. Yeah, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it'll help me in any way approach, approaching any other non-Christian right. worldview from those aspects. Good. Okay. So the three parts of worldview, metaphysics, epistemology. So metaphysics, the, the what is the ground of being? What is the nature of being? Uh, that, and that for you know, obviously deals with theology, anthropology, or those kind of issues. Uh, cosmology. Uh, then what is the nature of uh, knowing what we know? How do we know what we know? That's epistemology. That's the second part of a worldview. And that's based on your metaphysics. And then thirdly, your ethics. Um, what's right and wrong in, in your worldview according to what you know, according to the, the ground of being. So yeah, that's the three parts of worldview. You take that, you take that and, and try to expose that in whoever you're talking to, because frankly, they've never thought about these things, you know, pretty much, unless, unless you're a debater. Nicholas. I was thinking of Paul uh, Acropolis as just a really good example of how to take, he's using the same exact approach, but with religious people. You got it. And he's, um, he starts out just by very simply asserting the exclusivity of Christ and the gospel, and then kind of let's come what may. And I think that's where we get into, I think it's First Peter 3, where it's honor Christ the Lord is holy in your hearts. And that's where we have to, to settle that way before we get into a discussion with anybody from any worldview. Because in many of these worldviews, you're going to start feeling a little bit in unfamiliar waters, and it's going to shake your certainty. And you have to be, remember, I hold to the exclusivity of Christ. He is the one true worldview. And I'm going to assert that and just deal with what comes. You got it. That's well said. And you anticipated where I wanted to end in Acts 17. Wow. Apple doesn't far fall from the tree. <laughs> so, Paul standing. See, see if Paul doesn't sound like Dr. Bonson, or let's say Dr. Bonson sounds like Paul, right? Let's see. Listen to this. Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That's not a compliment, by the way. <laughs> 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What you therefore worship as unknown, or another way to translate that, (laughs) what you therefore worship as ignorant. Uh, This I I proclaim to you, this I make known to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Now what's he doing? He's talking about metaphysics there, isn't he? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That is metaphysics. He's talking about cosmology. He's talking about theology. He's asserting that right from the very beginning. Anthropology. Anthropology as well. Yep. So he gives to all, all mankind life, breath, and everything. He's, he's talking about the self-sufficiency of God. The fact that he is ase, he's aseity of God. Uh, So he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. What's he doing there? He's talking about God's absolute sovereignty. He's talking about God's, uh, the fact that God made everything, therefore determines everything that, like right and wrong. And you see the, the, the language of moral responsibility, moral accountability there when he says that they should what? Seek, Seek God. They should. Should, ought, those are categories of morality. You must seek God. And that he's knowable. That's epistemology. That he's, a know- he's knowable. Right, exactly. That's epistemology. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us for, and then he's quoting one of their own prophets, in him we live and move and have our being. What's that? That's talking about God's, um, God is his absolute everywhere omnipresence, his, his absolute being. He's, he's in every place at all times. In him we live and move and have our being. All time and matter exists in God. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You're acknowledging that you belong to him, that he gave you your mind, that you are responsible to reason Use that reason in obedience to him that you should use your reason to seek God, not your own will, not your own pleasure. Being then God's offspring, we ought, there's, there's moral language again, we ought, ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. That is irrational, right? The divine being is, is not like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, because if God is made patterned after the art and imagination of man, what is he? He's confined and comprehended completely within man's mind, right? The times of ignorance, so he's not commending them. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now we're back to what Jack talked about with regard to historical veracity, reliability of the scripture. What Kerry was saying, go to the evidence here. He's given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. An empty tomb. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. 
So there was a yield even from the Areopagus of souls. God sent Paul there to get those people. I saw a hand. Was it you, Jesse? Yeah, can you just tell me where you were reading? Oh, sorry, Acts 17. Acts 17. You wanted to follow along in your Bible, of course. (laughs) Like a good Bible student. Sorry about that. Acts 17, 22 uh, to the end of the chapter, 34. So again, you hear um, Dr. Bonson has just taken Paul's approach. He's just using Paul's approach. And he's bringing that into you know, his own study, his uh, study of philosophy and all that. He's taking that approach and he's bringing it to uh, this debate format. We, if we could just continue in scripture, if we continue, you know, Jesse's asking for the verse or the, 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 the reference uh, location because we need to be doing that. We need to be going to scripture and saying, okay, let's read this for ourselves. Let this get into our minds and use this as we talk to people. God will give us a harvest of souls. It's, it's determined by him who he's going to save, and he's going to send us to him. Okay? So be confident. Go out there. We'll, go, we'll come back in the new year, and we will uh, start to work this out in practically as we start to address uh, some different worldviews and, uh, and uh, have some fun with it. Okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is above all earthly powers. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who will come to judge the quick and the dead. He will speak words of judgment like a sword coming from his mouth to, uh, to slay the wicked. And we are grateful to be protected, safe in the ark of his rescue uh, of the cross. We thank you that you have uh, chosen us, that we are uh, your people. And we pray that you would strengthen us and give us boldness and confidence and tenderness and gentleness and patience with people as we go out and bring this this saving gospel to them. We pray that you would use all of these efforts and what we're learning to bear much fruit. We thank you for teaching us. We thank you for using gifted men to uh, help us to understand these things. So we just pray for... Uh, just a wonderful Christmas season as we are going to be with friends and family and talking with neighbors and, and all the rest as we talk about the holidays, the holy days, the, the time of Christmas, the Advent, uh, the meaning of Christ and his birth. We just pray that you give us many avenues for sharing the gospel, that you show us open doors and help us to, uh, to have the strength and temerity to walk through them. We love you. We thank you again for the the Christ who has saved us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.